Christ has risen. Now you say Christ has risen indeed. We do this every year. You know the routine, uh, but not this year. Reminded again and regarding the empty sanctuary behind me of the longing that I and I know you have of coming together and looking into God's word, listening to it, particularly on this Easter Easter Sunday, you know, Easter is such a, a great day in the Christian faith, the celebration that Christ has indeed been risen. Really, this is the centerpiece of the gospel. It's the foundation upon which the Christian faith rests, that he has been raised. Paul calls it an order of first importance. You know, John, the gospel writer, the passage we're studying today, he actually speaks about this. In the passage that we're reading, he, he brings up the resurrection as a point that this is how and why we are to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Let me read for you the 31st verse in chapter 20. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John makes no bones about why he's writing the gospel. He writes so that you might hear this resurrection, hear the testimonies of the eyewitnesses, and believe, and you might find life in the name of Christ. And yet this very resurrection, which is to be the point of our belief, is oftentimes a struggle for us to believe. And many people will say they agree with many of the things in the Bible until it gets to the resurrection. They have trouble believing. It's a hurdle for them. I just can't believe that one, they'll say. They may even follow it with, well, you know, if I was in the first century during this time, well, they're pre-scientific people. Maybe they could believe it easier than I could. But is that true? I mean, is it true that those in the first century would have an easier time believing? than those of us in the 21st century? I don't think it's true. I mean, the resurrections didn't happen a lot back then. They were as rare. It's only one as, as we know. They aren't occurring more then than they do now. In fact, you might be surprised to know that they didn't even have the category of a bodily resurrection. You know, when you take the people of the first century, uh, you can put them into two groups, Jews and Gentiles. Uh, the Gentiles themselves, most of them were dualists. They believed that the body and the spirit were two different things. They were together in our body, but death would release the spirit. The body was seen as a husk, as kind of a shell. It was known by limitations and, and sicknesses and weaknesses and disease. That they longed to be released from the body. They saw it as a release from prison. They didn't have the category to want to see the body raised. They wanted to be freed from the body. Now, the Jewish person, on the other hand, uh, they believed in a final resurrection, but at the end of time. So when God would bring all things to order, uh, then there would be a great resurrection. But neither group had any conceivable idea that there might be a bodily resurrection within human history. So, so actually it was probably very difficult for them to believe in this. So then why do they believe? Well, they believe because of an empty tomb. And that's what I want to show you today. We want to look at this text in two pieces. First, the reality of death. Jesus did die and he was buried. He did die. That's important for a resurrection to take place, obviously. And then he was raised to life. This humiliation that Jesus would go through in death 
would be met by the exaltation of the resurrection. So let's look at both of those things so that we might see what moved these men and women toward belief in something that seems so unbelievable. Well, first, the reality of death. You'll see that in chapter 19, verses 38 to 42. Um, this death and burial is recorded. His death, of course, was indisputed, undisputed. It was clear from the Gospels and from the Romans. He died. People were not crucified and lived. Uh, this death and burial was actually the last stage of Jesus's humiliation. When I say humiliation, I don't mean like he was embarrassed over it. Uh, humiliation means the humbling of Jesus to the point of dying. So think about it. Last week, I addressed the fact that Jesus was one with the Father. When you see him, you see the Father. When you hear him, you hear the Father. Jesus is equal to God in essence, dignity, and glory. And yet in his earthly ministry, he humbled himself. He became a man. He took on flesh. And he lived without sin to please the Father. He then bore our sins, and he bore the curse associated with our sins, and he suffered the judgment of that curse by dying. That's what it means in Philippians 2 when Paul says that he humbled himself even to the point of death. This was his humiliation, dying for our sins on a cross. Uh, but the final step of his humiliation was to be buried, to be put into the earth. And that's where our story picks up where John gives us the details of this burial. We're introduced to two men. One is a stranger to us, Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus, which you will read about in chapter 3 and chapter 7. Joseph of Arimathea uh, was a believer, we read, and a secret one because he was in fear of the Jews. Nicodemus, likewise, we believe, was a follower of Jesus, but again, a secret one. You know, in chapter 3, when he went to see Jesus, he actually went at night, presumably because he was in fear of the Jews. Now, these two men were part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling class um, over and in, in Israel and in Jerusalem. And, and they were wealthy. They were well-positioned. They encountered great risk overtaking Jesus and taking care of his body. So Joseph going to Pilate, asking for his body, that would have clearly... Uh, labeled him as a follower of Jesus. Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of these spices and linen cloths to anoint and prepare Jesus's body for burial. But these two secret believers came out of the shadows and gave Jesus a burial fit for a king. But at the end of the day, you have these two men caring for the body, but it's clear that Jesus had died. Now, how does Jesus' death and burial instruct us? Well, it shows us that death is common to man, right? Even the best of men die. There is no escaping death. I think we have the tendency in our day and age to kind of insulate ourselves and deceive ourselves about death. Now, this COVID-19 pandemic has clearly made us more aware of our fragility and mortality. But let me remind you, whether it's COVID-19 or not, all men and all women die. They all die. Now, again, as I mentioned, we sanitize it a bit. It wasn't this way in the past. In the past, if you died, you were probably in your home. Your family had to take care of you. They'd wash you. They'd put clothes on you. They may lay you out in the living room where friends and family would visit and pay their respects, but it was them who had to take you to the cemetery, dig the hole, and bury you. There was a closer proximity to death. 
it was harder for them to get away from the reality that all men and women die. Well, in the last century, we have outsourced much of it. We have had other people do it. We give the body away. They take care of it. It's sanitized for us. We just show up in suits. Death becomes the unspeakable reality. We don't talk about it. Irony, the uh, one author wrote, you know, in the Victorian age, all they did was talk about death. They never talked about sex. And in our day, all we talk about sex and we never talk about death. And yet death stands before every one of us. And this COVID-19 makes us clear. Do you think about your death? How often do you consider what that day will be like? How often does it bring you to a place of thinking, what will that day be? Am I prepared? Will I see God? What will life be like? You know, my greatest fear is that we might be procrastinators to thinking about our own death. I pray we won't be that way. You know, the psalmist in 39, he actually prays that he would understand the brevity of life. He says these words, he says, oh, Lord, this is a prayer. He says, oh, Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Have you ever prayed that? Have you ever asked God to show you the brevity of your life? Can I encourage you to consider it? We read just a few weeks back in Ecclesiastes that it's better to go in the house of mourning than to to go into the house of feasting. Why? Because in the house of mourning, we're reminded of our own destiny. We're reminded of the brevity of life. Think about it. This is not a morbid event. I don't want it to be that way. I want it to be a realistic event. And you coming to terms with the brevity of your own life. Because death comes to all men, as we see even with a man such as Jesus. Now, if I stopped here, and if we ended the gospel in chapter 19, uh, we might be led to despair. I mean, we might be led to some form of eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we may die. But it's this burial that is met by this empty tomb. The humiliation of Christ is met with the exaltation of Christ. His death is met with life. And that's what we find in chapter 20. We see the certainty of life overcome the reality of death. Now, we see this, of course, in Mary as she leaves while it's still dark and she goes to the tomb. You see this in verse 1 forward. She goes to the tomb while it's still dark. And it's going to the tomb that she discovers the stone has been rolled away. You know, it's a large stone. It was circular. It would be in a track and it would be rolled to cover the opening of the tomb to secure it from thieves and robbers. That was rolled back. Now, we don't think just Mary went. John references Mary uh, specifically only because she's kind of a primary spokesman. You know, she becomes the first witness in verse 11 on. Uh, but there was probably a number of women that were with her. And you know that because when, they, when she leaves the tomb and she reports to Peter and John that the stone was rolled away, she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. We don't know where. So there's probably Joanna, Mary, and another Mary with her. There's probably a company of women that were here on the scene. What I want you to see, though, is when they went to the tomb and they saw the stone rolled away, they had no expectation he would be raised. They had no belief in this bodily resurrection. You see, when she says they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, they, who? Presumably Roman authorities, maybe Jewish authorities, maybe robbers. They assumed Jesus was stolen or taken. 
Either way, they run back to Peter and John. They give them the report of the stone. Well, this, this sets off a foot race now uh, between Peter and John. The younger one, of course, wins. Uh, John gets to the tomb first. He looks inside, but he doesn't enter. I don't know why. It's not told to us. Perhaps it's fear. Uh, perhaps it's some sort of deference to Peter. Uh, but Peter arrives after him and, of course, in concert with his personality, boldly goes right in. And what's he find? Well, of course, he doesn't find Jesus. The tomb is empty. But he does find the grave linens, those things wrapped around his body. Remember now, the Egyptians, they would embalm their people. They would cut the flesh and embalm the body. The Jewish burial tradition did not mutilate the body would wrap spices around the body with strips of linen. So Peter saw those strips of linen just as they were on the slab where Jesus was laid, and he saw the cloth that covered the face and the head folded up to the side. Now, at that point, John enters. And in verse 8, it's a critical verse. It says that John sees and believes. Well, what does he see? And this is, a, this is the pinnacle, it's a call for faith here. As I said at the beginning of John, at the beginning of the sermon, John's gospel is calling for faith. We're seeing John, the writer of the gospel, experience this increase in faith here. What does he see? Well, I think he sees what Peter saw. He saw no body. There was no body there. Now, let me say this. No body in a tomb doesn't necessarily argue for a resurrection. Again, there were thieves and robbers. They would, they would loot the tombs of wealthy uh, people who have died, maybe valuables or money would be uh, put with them in the tomb. So it doesn't prove a resurrection. What he sees, though, is the linens. They're undisturbed. They're present. So, so it's as if verse 7 seems to indicate it's as if his body was just raised through them. And he sees the head cloth that covered the face. It's not with the body, which is where it should be. It's over here, apart from it, and it's folded. Now, he sees this and believes. Why is it called belief? Well, if it was a robbery, they're not going. Can you imagine robbers breaking into a tomb and they're unwrapping the body and all the spices and putting it back in place, but forgetting to put the head cloth? It makes no sense at all. So John sees this and he recognizes there is no body and yet the grave linens are as they should be, except the head is over here folded up. How could that be? He sees and then he believes. What do you mean? What do I mean by he believes? I think he has a new understanding. You know, this isn't the first time John believed that Jesus was the Messiah. What I think John believes is that he is the Messiah who had to die and be raised again. I think for John, these grave linens were like the appearance of Christ himself. In other words, he didn't get this from Scripture. The evidence before him was an empty tomb and these orderly grave linens. And notice that he says there, he says, as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must be raised from the dead. It was later on that they saw how the Scriptures prophesied that he would die and be raised. His faith was rooted in the evidence that he was not there. He had been raised, confirmed by the Scripture. It's as if the, it's as if the experience itself illuminated Scripture. The Scriptures that he's speaking about could be Psalm 16, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, 
or let your Holy One see corruption. This is speaking about the Messiah. The Holy One will not see corruption. Or maybe he's referencing Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. That's Jesus, the servant, the Messiah he's speaking about. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Notice it says, he shall, that is the Messiah, shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. God shall prolong the Messiah's days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in the Messiah's hand. So they began to see these scriptures and see empty tomb, grave linens there, in an oral, he's been raised. Look, it's all been testified to in the scripture. His faith was moved. This is the point of John writing the gospel, to arouse faith within us over the nature of this empty tomb. So when you look and you consider this, that the tomb is empty, when you see that, do you believe? You know, the empty tomb for years since the writing of the gospel has been evidence. And do you realize that even the Jewish polemicists of the day, those who argued against Christianity, they did not deny the tomb is empty. The Roman authorities did not deny the tomb was empty. No one did. No one did. It was empty. Even Peter, when he preaches a little bit while later, he preaches in Acts. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. He's saying even King David he died and was buried, and we can go to his tomb, and we can open it up and see his ashes. You can't with Jesus. There was no body. You know, it, it, during this time, both before and after uh, the ministry of Jesus, there were many different Messianic movements. Men would step up, and they would say, I'm the Messiah. I have come from God to throw off the Roman rule. And they would gather men and women around them, and they, they would have a revolt. But it was always the case that when that self-proclaimed Messiah would die, the movement died. It just stopped. But here the Messiah dies, but it doesn't stop. It grows. Why? Because it couldn't produce a body. We have to deal with this. There is no, there was no body found. They could have quickly erased any movement of Christianity, just hold out the corpse, drop him in the center of Jerusalem, say, there's your Messiah. There was no body to do that with. So when you see this, do you believe? See, what John is leading us to, uh, both his readership and all that follow, is that we would see with him into the tomb, we would believe his eyewitness testimony that I saw the grave clothes. They were there as they were, but the, the head cloth was folded to the side, but he wasn't there. And he's calling us to believe. What's he saying to believe? Well, to believe is to see that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Christ, he's the Messiah. He is the servant of God. He is the one promised from God who would lead us like Moses. But the exodus that he would lead would be out of sin and out of shame and out of guilt, reconciled to the Father, out of the wilderness, out of exile, back into the presence of God, leading us back to a new Eden, if you will, that Jesus has come to do that, to bear our sins, to cleanse us and to reconcile us to God. But, but to believe is not just to see Jesus as a savior, as the Christ, the Messiah, but also to see him as the son of God. And so John says in the 31st verse that we are to see him as God's own son, one with the father. I mean, think 
about the Son of God. He's been given all rule and authority over all things. He is both the Savior and he is the Lord of all things, the judge of all mankind. That his life, his life stands as his testimony to the truth of scriptures. I mean, the resurrection doesn't just confirm that Jesus is both Savior and Lord, but everything he said, the promises he made, the truths he proclaimed, they're all true. The Old Testament that we may intellectually or even morally often struggle with. All of the Old Testament is true as it teaches. Now, we may not understand it all, all the time. But Jesus himself said to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he said, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So it, what John is saying is, I'm telling you the tomb is empty as evidence to prove that his words are true. He's been raised from the dead, ascended, now seated at the right hand of God. And this is what we're called to believe, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing that we will have life in his name. I would ask you on this day, do you believe this? Have you, ever, have you ever moved with repentance and faith? When we talk about a Christian, uh, a person becoming a Christian, it's through repentance and faith. We repent of our sins. We acknowledge that, yes, he is the Savior who has died for us. He is the Lord of creation. And we will both repent of our sins and we'll believe in him and follow him. That's what it means to become a Christian. If you have never believed in this, this is how to have life in his name. Otherwise, what do you do with an empty tomb? And what do you do with your own tomb? How will you handle your own death when you consider your own mortality and the days passing that you are fleeting as a shadow? What will you do? Well, I agree with John that he has written these things so that we might believe. I pray that you will. But there are other implications of this empty tomb. And let me try to encourage you with a few of these. Uh, first, uh, the first implication would be that an empty tomb speaks encouragement to those of us who are struggling with believing. We doubt. We have trouble learning the Christian faith. We feel like it's, you know, two steps forward, three back. You know, many of us struggle in that way. We just think, I'll never get it. I can't remember. I hear it over and over and it doesn't stick. Look with me and take heart at John and Peter. They admit, they said, we didn't understand. We didn't get it. They doubted. They disbelieved. Thomas himself said, I want to put my finger in his side. I mean, doubt and struggle in faith are part of the Christian life. The Christian life is an incremental growth. It's a slow growth. I mean, Paul uses analogies like farming or running or traveling or like a child growing up through into adulthood. That's the nature of the Christian life. Be encouraged, if you're a Christian, to continue to press on. We are lifelong learners. We will struggle all through life while still in the flesh. But take heart that these, these men, you know, Peter and John, they were with Jesus for three years. They saw the miracles. They heard the teachings. They watched the life, and yet they still struggle. I would actually say this is a reason why God has been gracious to us in giving us the church. He's given to us teachers to help instruct and lead and help us understand. He's 
He's called us together as a church to be brothers and sisters, one with the other, helping encourage each other as we're walking along towards heaven. We can't get to heaven without help. The Spirit of God will use the people of God to bring us all to himself. A, a second encouragement that we have from the empty tomb is that it's a word of forgiveness to the one who feels guilty and burdened by his sin. This is important. When you look in the empty tomb, you're reminded that my sins have been paid for. And when you look at the tomb, you know that he died. So he did die bearing your sins. So his death, bearing your sins and bearing the curse, means that God has brought about a proper judgment for your sins, but it fell on him. He stood in your stead. He bore the penalty of your sins. But when you look at the tomb, it's empty. Why? Because God accepted his sacrifice on your behalf. That's what Paul writes in Romans 4. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. That means the resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb, declares that we are justified. We're declared innocent. We have passed out of judgment into life forever. Those of us, you know, there is a degree when you look back on your life, there's shame associated with many of the things that you've done that have been sinful and that have been selfish against God. A, A little bit of that is helpful. It's good. It's right. But let that shame drive you to the tomb. Let it drive you to the forgiveness that is promised to us, the reconciliation, the adoption. You know, Paul in Romans chapter 8, even saying he struggled with sin, he says, I do that which I don't want to do. I don't do that which I want to do. So he's testifying to his own struggle with sin. But then he goes right to chapter 8, verse 1. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. All of those who believe upon the Son, who look in that empty tomb, we recognize we have been forgiven. Listen, dear saint, if you're carrying all your sins and and you're saying to yourself, I don't think he can forgive me. He said it is finished. Don't continue on what he has said he has completed. So take heart that he has justified you. The empty tomb speaks loudly to that. And then thirdly, the empty tomb offers strength to those who are anxious over the uncertainties of life. You know, we live in a time right now of great uncertainties. I would argue that we've always had uncertainties, but we don't have them put before our eyes like we do now. I mean, on your TV screen, on your computer screen, just the rolling numbers of those who are being infected and even dying with this pandemic. We're left uncertain. The financial markets are are in trouble. Our health systems are being pressed in many places beyond measure. You know, the ground under our feet, it seems like it will never be solid again. Well, let me remind you that the ground under your feet, if it was on circumstances of life and the things that you've done, was never certain. It was never solid. The ground under our feet needs to be Christ. He's the rock. You know, Jesus says, if you hear my words and you do them, you're like the house built upon the rock. The only solidness we have is this empty tomb because he has died, he has been raised, he's ascended, and he's now at the right hand of God. And the letter of Ephesians reminds us that he's at the right hand of God for the church above ruler and dominion and power and every other authority. He stands above it all. So while there may be all kinds of uncertainties in the world in which we live, he's over the world. Ronnie preached that in Romans 16, 33. 
He says, in this world, you'll have tribulation. You'll have uncertainties, no doubt. He says, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So we take our uncertainties to the certainty of this resurrected, ascended, and now coronated king. I can give you no better hope than that. And then the fourth and the last encouragement that we can draw from this empty tomb, for today at least, is this idea that there is a basis for our longing for something more. There's a basis for it. This empty tomb is a basis that things will be restored and renewed. Now remember, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. The, res the, the raising of Lazarus was different than the resurrection. And what Lazarus experienced is called a revivification. He was revived. He was dead. He was made alive. But nothing else changed. He continued to live and then he died again and his body was put in a tomb and he decayed and, and suffered all the rest of us go through. You could find his dust now somewhere in the Middle East. The point is that he wasn't resurrected. Jesus was resurrected. Now, there is continuity. You see that he was raised with his body. The scars were there. The language is there. He ate fish with them. They recognized him. So there is continuity in this resurrection, but there's also discontinuity. He wasn't raised the same. He didn't undergo decay. He didn't undergo corruption. He will live forever. In other words, Jesus is the beginning of a new era, the renewal of all things. His body was made. It is the same, but it's different. It's now eternal. It's now glorious. It's the same hope we have. Our bodies will be made new. They will continue. We will be who we are. But we will be renewed. We will be made new. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. He says that we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. He said the same thing in Philippians. He says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. This is the hope we have, regardless of the sickness or the struggles what you face in the bodies, that the empty tomb speaks encouragement to us that we will be made like him in every way. That is a future certainty, but not just us, creation itself is longing to be redeemed. Paul continues, he says in Romans, he says the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What he's saying is, is that Jesus has come. He's humbled himself. He's come. He's died. He's been buried. But now he's been raised. The tomb is empty. He's been raised. And he is renewing not just the sons and the daughters of glory, but all of creation itself. And if we think that we love this world and enjoy this world, the brightness of this world compared 
to the world that he is renewing, it's like a candle to the sun itself. It'll be blindingly glorious. That's the hope that we have. Now, if you're listening and you're a Christian, this is a point of contemplation. I would challenge you to take some time today and consider, to consider this idea that he is the beginning of a new era. He is restoring all things. He's already begun the kingdom. In fact, in your own life, if you're a Christian, you know that power of the Spirit renewing you even now. Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthians, he says that, that we, beholding Christ, will be transformed, will be renewed from glory to glory. This is through the power of the Spirit. So one evidence of the resurrection is that we've been given the Spirit, and the Spirit comes to dwell within the Christian and begins that process of renewal that will be completed when we see him. We see this in Romans chapter 8. He says, and if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who lives in you. In other words, the Spirit is now in me, helping me overcome sin, shame, guilt, transforming me from glory to glory, incrementally, slowly, for sure, but changing me to look more and more like the image of the sun. This is what we want to contemplate. This is the glory of Easter, that he's changing us now. And the fruit we see now is just a foretaste of all that will be ours on that final day. This is the hope of an empty tomb. He's changing us now. But if you're listening and you're not a Christian here, do you not agree that you want this? I mean, isn't there something in you that discontentment over that your expectations are never met, your desires are never achieved. I mean, you may get the new car, you may get the new job, you may get the new spouse, you may get the higher raise. It never seems to measure up to what you want. Even a vacation you've planned for, you've saved for, you've longed for, and then you have it, it's just not what you hoped for. You know, it's kind of like the ideal of what you can consider is never the real. And that which is yonder that looks so pleasing is never the here of your life. God has made it that way. He's given us desires and imaginations that point to something greater than what we have so that we would long for it, that we would want for it. That is what Jesus has come to do, to bring us to that. But the only way we have that full contentment is through faith in Christ, by, by putting our hope and trust, by believing that Jesus is the Messiah who has come to save, and he is the Lord of life who's come to give us a full life, an abundant life. May I encourage you this Easter, consider this, to consider the reality of your longings and see how nothing in your life has ever fulfilled them, and that you might turn by faith to Christ and ask to be made new, Ask that he might change you, that he might begin the renewal process in your own soul. And if you do pray that, would you tell a, a Christian friend that you've done that? Uh, don't let this Easter pass. It has a word both for the Christian and the non-Christian. John wrote this gospel, the gospel that we just read, that we might believe that he is the Christ and the Son of God. And that in believing, in other words, in the process of believing, like John saw and believed, in believing we will have eternal life in his name. I pray you find the peace of God that is ours 
through this text. I, I hope you see the mercy of God here. I hope you don't neglect his kindness even today. Let me pray for us. Father, I am thankful to you that only you can give life to those who are listening. I can water, others can plant, but you have to cause the growth. In fact, neither the water nor the plant or anything, but only God causes all things to grow. So, Father, for the glory of your name and for the, and for the glory of your Son and the beautiful work that he has done for us, would you grant life? Would you grant an arousal of faith in the hearers today to see this tomb is empty, to know that Christ has been raised and now ascended and seated at your right hand for the church. Bring great joy to us. Bring great faith. Continue and complete this renewal process. Uh, perfect the work that you have started in us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.